Yeah, that's all true. I'm just saying the girl liked to get messed up. She didn't drop out. Devin got kicked out of school. We opened an investigation in Devin Riesling in September of that year. There was a relationship between her and a nursing professor here at the hospital. And while he was on shift, there were controlled substances that went unaccounted for. When you say there was a relationship, do you mean a romantic relationship? Her and Damien had this crazy whirlwind romance, you know, sneaking around, meeting on the down low. They had to sneak around because he was her professor? Uh, Yeah, I mean that too, but mostly because he was married. I have no idea where he is. He hasn't replied to a text, a phone call, an email, nothing. Welcome to Dead of the Night, an investigative podcast looking into the disappearance of Devin Riesling, a 23-year-old nursing student who disappeared on February 9th, 2019. On our last episode, we had a Q&A. Before that, we traveled to Ann Arbor, Michigan, to find out more about Devin's life while she was away at college. We learned that Devin had an affair with one of her professors, Dr. Damian Cohen, while in Michigan. Instead of dropping out of college to care for Patty, like Devin had told friends and family back home, we discovered that Devin had been expelled from the University of Michigan for drug use and the inappropriate relationship between her and Dr. Cohen. This week, I want to pick up where we left off during the Q&A episode. One of the questions during the QA was regarding a phone call that Isaac claims Devin received on her last day before going missing. A phone call that she answered while in a movie theater and stepped out of the room to take. Isaac mentioned that Devin answered a phone call from her mother in the middle of the movie. Um, isn't it possible to like check like phone records or like can you confirm that this call was made? Considering everything we've learned about Devin in the past couple weeks, I would say it's a possibility that Devin had a second phone. We've already established that she did not have another phone plan registered in her name, nor any unknown phone bills that were being paid by her credit or debit cards, but she could have a track phone, also known as a pay-as-you-go phone. These are phone plans you don't have to register your name to, so unless there's security footage of you buying it, there's really no way to find out who the phone belongs to. To firmly establish if Devin had one of these phones, we would need some other evidence, like the packaging the phone came in, a charger, something like that. While Brett attempted to track down the possibility of Devin's second cell phone, I, in the meantime, set up an interview with Jay. To remind you, Jay is one of Devin's friends who she was text messaging in the months before her disappearance. They went to high school together and stayed in touch over the years, meeting up occasionally for coffee or drinks. Due to his association with the illegal drug market in Emmett, Jay asked us that In return for his cooperation, we changed his name and not released the recording of his interview. To be honest, I was a bit disappointed that he wouldn't let his interview be aired, mostly because it was an enlightening conversation that led me to a greater understanding of who Devin really was. But, Jay did agree to let me relay the details of his interview. So, Jay's story began back in high school, when Devin approached him after class one day. She was struggling to keep up in school, especially since she was juggling honors classes with the debate team, a part-time waitressing job she used to supplement Patty's inconsistent income, and all the normal social demands of being a teenager. For Devin, it was especially important that she excel in school. As she learned from her older brother TJ, good grades were the ticket to getting into a good college and getting out of their small town. Jay says that Devin asked him for a hookup. She knew that meth would keep you up for days at a time, 
and she wanted to stay awake so she could study. But Jay refused to sell Devin meth. He knew that Devin wasn't his typical customer. She wasn't trying to get high, she was trying to get a 4.0. So instead, Jay told Devin to go to the doctor's office and complain about having difficulty focusing, restlessness, and hyperactivity. Get a prescription for Adderall, he told her. It'll help you stay up late studying and doing homework. And you don't have to sneak around and risk getting in trouble. Just head over to Walgreens and fill a prescription. Devin agreed. She later confided in Jay that she had followed his instructions, got an ADHD diagnosis and a prescription for Adderall. And that's how Devin was able to handle it all. Straight A's, debate team, 25 hours a week of waitressing, and an alcoholic mother who couldn't take care of herself. Devin was a superhero, with the power of performance-enhancing drugs. When I asked Jay if he knew about Devin's illicit drug use while away at college, he told me that he didn't know the full extent of it, but, however, Devin had mentioned that while in Michigan, her Adderall prescription ran out, and she wasn't able to find a doctor out there who believed she actually had ADHD. So when she lost her prescription, she started buying Adderall on the street, which is how Jay suspects that Devin first started using other drugs. Jay said that as soon as you have a hookup, it becomes easier and easier to try new things. When I asked Jay why he hadn't come forward with this information about Devin sooner, he had a pretty convincing answer. He didn't think it was relevant. Dragging Devin's name through the dirt as a drug user, even if they were technically prescribed to her, didn't seem like it would help Devin's case. I understand where he was coming from. I often have doubts and concerns about revealing so much personal information about Devin to the world, but I wouldn't be doing my job as a podcaster if I cherry-picked the information that was provided in the podcast. If I overlooked a lead because I was trying to maintain Devin's image as a wholesome valedictorian who selflessly cared for her dying mother, then I couldn't forgive myself. It's my job to ask the hard questions, to find the truth about what happened to Devin, wherever that may take me. I'm still trying to regroup from my trip to Ann Arbor, to make sense of all the new information I learned. But I still felt like I needed more information about who Devin really was, not the virtuous front she put on to the world. So when TJ mentioned that he was putting Patty's home on the market, Brett asked if we could have a look in her bedroom before her belongings were packed up and put into storage, and TJ agreed. The home had been sitting empty since Patty died, and Devin's room was essentially untouched since the day she disappeared. Brett was looking for some evidence that Devin had a second cell phone, packaging from a track phone or a cell phone charger that didn't fit her iPhone, but I was looking for something more general. Who was Devin? Really? Was she the student who helped her mom pay the bills when Patty lost yet another job? Who graduated top of her class and got accepted to one of the best nursing schools in the country? Or was she the girl who kept parts of her life secret from the people closest to her? Who had a relationship with a married man, used illegal drugs, and got expelled from college? Or maybe, my binary thinking was wrong entirely. Maybe she was both. A complicated girl who had a difficult childhood and was struggling to find her way. I was desperate to know more. TJ said there should be a key under the turtle. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm, I don't see a turtle. Do you think he meant a frog? Maybe. Wait, hold on. I think this is more of a tortoise, but... There it is. As we start looking through Devin's stuff, I can't help but feel a bit... voyeuristic. After all, it's not like Devin ever gave me permission to make a podcast about her, find out all her secrets and dig through her bedroom looking for clues. But, 
If we find anything in this room that can lead us to finding Devon, it'll all be worth it. Feels like she was just here yesterday. Look, there's a copy of the messenger index from February 6th right here, next to her bed. Frozen in time. Yeah. Most of what we find is mundane. Clothes, books and DVDs, paperwork from school. In her closet underneath a pile of clothes is an old art kit, paintbrushes and acrylic paints and even a couple of small paintings. It's endearing. Devon was actually quite talented. However, the art kit looks like it hasn't been used in a while. The paints are all dried out. It looks like a hobby that Devon long ago abandoned. Probably because she didn't have time. Is this what that guy was talking about? What? Empty bottle of Adderall. Filled April 1st, 2015. Was that under her bed? Yeah. Must have been down here for a while. I guess that confirms Jay's story. I guess so. On her desk is a mirror, a makeup bag, a blow dryer, and a curling iron. Things that, if you've ever seen a picture of Devon, were clearly in her everyday arsenal, since friends say she never left the house without her hair and makeup done. It's hard to imagine her leaving behind all these things. A stack of letters from her dad in prison, a class ring, a souvenir canteen from a debate camp in northern Idaho. Then again... Patty didn't provide Devon with the most, let's say, financially stable life. Most of Devon's belongings are clearly well-worn, even falling apart. Her furniture was outdated or broken, held together with a few extra screws and some duct tape. What little jewelry she owned was betrayed by the green rings it left behind as cheap costume jewelry. And sitting on the bed revealed it as an archaic spring mattress. So, maybe leaving behind all this junk was easier than I thought. What do you think this means? Uh, is that a note? It was being used as a bookmark. Looks like a note or... No, I don't know. What's it say? Can't read it. Looks like a bunch of scribbles. That's weird. Can I see it? I'm looking at a piece of paper, maybe four inches wide with black ink markings on it. On first glance, it appears to be another language. Sanskrit, maybe. I'll post a picture of the note on the Dead of the Night Instagram so our listeners can take a look and try to identify the language. It's intriguing, to say the least. But Brett warns me not to get ahead of myself. Not everything is a clue. Sometimes a scribble is just a scribble. Ironically, Brett's comment reminds me of another mundane object that just might be a clue. Clothing. Specifically the two boxes of clothing that Asha mentioned she left in the hallway for a friend to pick up and ship to Devon after she had moved away. None of Devon's university friends have admitted to picking up those clothes, and yet, they were gone. Curious about whether Devon ever eventually got her clothes back, I quickly sent a text to Asha asking her to describe as many items of clothing as she could. Luckily, she replied right away. Okay, so we're looking for a purple zip-up, a yellow polka dot dress, and uh, a cheetah print swimsuit. The rest is pretty generic, jeans and t-shirts and stuff, so I think these will be the easiest to point out. I'll look through the closet if you take that pile over there. Sure. And tell me why we're looking for this stuff? Well, Asha says she left two boxes of clothes in the hallway after Devin had already moved home. So, apparently Devin said that she'd have a friend pick them up, but none of her friends have said they were the ones to get the boxes. 
So, you're saying if the clothes from the boxes aren't here... Then it could mean that she had Damien Cowan come pick up the boxes, meaning they were still in communication when she left town. Or the boxes were stolen from the hallway. Yeah, true. That that could be. I'm not seeing any polka dots. Yeah, me either. What is this doing in here? Um, what is that? Is that an alarm clock? Yeah, but what's it doing in the closet hidden under a pile of clothes? I don't know. Maybe she just threw it in there while she was trying to clean up her room? Stuff everything in the closet? I mean, I used to pull that trick. Did your alarm clock also have an SD card in it? What? There's a hidden camera. Right there. Brett shows me a tiny slot on the back of the alarm clock. The perfect size for an SD card. On the front of the alarm clock, he points out a tiny circle right in between the colon. Separating the minutes from hours. A tiny circle that looks just like a camera lens. Holy shit. Uh, the memory card's been removed. Uh, let me look up this model number. This is seriously disturbing. Do you think Garrett did this? Was he watching her in her room? Yep. This one streams over Wi-Fi. Memory card's just a backup. Okay. We have to talk to Garrett again. Trust me. I'm all over it. Are you going to accuse me of shit and jump down my throat like Kenny does? Or are you actually going to listen to me? I told you. I'm here to listen. Good. Because I don't have to talk to you. I know that. And I'm glad that you decided to talk to me because I think we're looking for the same thing. Yeah. Okay. So, you just start wherever you're ready. Have you seen the movie Garden State? I don't believe I have. Well, there's this part where Zach Braff and Natalie Portman are in a hotel. They duck into this secret cubby between the walls and look through a peephole into a hotel room with people fucking. It's... Kind of like that, but on the internet. There's this website where voyeurs can watch live streams of chicks' bedrooms. You know, watch them change their clothes, get laid while they're sleeping. Is this on the dark web? Well, not really. I mean, technically, Tor servers on the dark web don't have the bandwidth to support a live stream. Plus, the streaming plugins would allow for location tracking. So technically, these websites are on the deep web. So they're not listed by any search engines. There's no link to it. Okay. So, you're saying you were broadcasting a live stream of Devin's bedroom on the internet? Well, I wasn't doing it. Devin was. Why would Devin do that? For money. And she needed some quick cash, and I suggested this as an option. Did Devin say why she needed the money? Not specifically. Just that money was tied at home. Her rich-ass brother only gave them enough to barely keep the lights on. So I set this camera up for her. Even made, made it hidden. So... Patty wouldn't find it and freak out. That Sunday, after she went missing, I noticed that the feed was black. I was getting messages from the website saying it had been dark for over 12 hours, giving me some warning to restore the feed or else the account would be closed. I knew something was weird, even before I saw the cops at her house. What did you do? I checked the GPS tracker on her car, and that's when I saw she was all the way up there in the middle of nowhere. So... You went up there? Yeah. I drove up there and when I came across her car, I got chills. All over my body, it was spooky. Her door wide open, keys dangling in the ignition. Did you see any footprints, tire tracks, blood? Nothing. Nothing. It was snowing pretty hard. I looked around for her, even trudged all the way up that godforsaken mountain to the cabin where she 
but she wasn't there. It took a couple days for Devin's house to calm down, but I was finally able to get in there and check the memory card. The days before she went missing, she seemed anxious. She wasn't really sleeping, but otherwise was doing her normal routine. Then that Saturday night, she gets home around 11, I guess, from her date with Isaac. And all of a sudden she looks at the camera like, like she forgot it was even there. Picks it up, shoves it under a puddle of clothes. Just to confirm what you're saying, on the night Devin went missing, you saw her come home from her date with Isaac and then cover up the camera. That's what I saw. Tell me about the money. From the live stream? How much she made depended on how many viewers she had, but usually she made about 50 bucks a day. Might not seem like very much, but during the four months she had this thing running, she must have made five or six thousand dollars. I know, I know exactly what you're thinking right now. You're thinking this guy is full of shit. Devin never had that much money in her bank account. Well, I mean that's because she got paid in Bitcoin. That was one of the benefits of this uh, job. Easy to move around, almost impossible to trace if you use a intermediary wallet. Plus, when she was earning it, Bitcoin was trading around. 4,000 and now it's worth 11 so she held on to it she could have as much as 16 or 17 grand right now I don't know that much about Bitcoin is it possible to track that money see where it's spent not if Devin's been washing her bitcoins like I like I taught her washing them moving them around using intermediate accounts transferring them into other blockchain coins and back and there's a lot of ways of hiding it so that money is essentially untraceable pretty much at the time that seemed like an advantage keep patty's hands off of it and don't have to pay taxes or anyone asking where the money came from but now that means we can't prove she ever got the money in the first place what are you saying i'm not telling the truth what i'm saying is that it would have been nice if you handed over some truth usernames and passwords for the streaming account and emails and messages you receive from them Messages between you and Devin, the memory card. Fine, fine. I'll send all that shit. Good. I just have one more question for you. What? You told us that you went up to Boiling Springs on the 10th, but where were you the night of February 9th? I was home, playing WoW all night. WoW? World of Warcraft. I'm a level 120 Night Elf Resto Druid. What? You haven't heard of it? Was anyone else home? My grandma was upstairs. Anyone else? Look, my guild will vouch for me. We were playing all night, doing a raid, the Battle of Bizarre Lore. It took like six or seven hours. Can you give me the names of some of the other players? You got a pen? Yeah, here you go. Just message this guy. He's my guild leader. Can you give me specific time. I had dinner with my grandma at 7, 7.30. Right after that I started playing WoW, just farming for a few things, kill time, waiting for the raid to start. And the raid went from maybe 10 to 5 a.m. Farming? Yeah, like collecting items for the game. So in total, you were playing World of Warcraft from 7.30 p.m. until 5 a.m.? That's what I said. 
All right. Thank you for your cooperation. I look forward to receiving that other information. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Brett's interview with Garrett was enlightening and a little baffling. I looked into it, and strangely enough, the kind of websites where people can get paid to broadcast video of their bedrooms is a real thing. I even found a hotel room in Japan where guests can pay as little as $8 a night for lodging in return for letting the hotel owner livestream their hotel room on the internet. This whole thing was starting to feel a little weird. But I had nothing to work off of. Nothing to prove or disprove what Garrett said until he provided us some kind of proof himself. In the meantime, I started looking into his alibi for the night of February 9th that he was home playing the online game World of Warcraft the entire night. For those who are unfamiliar, World of Warcraft is a massively multiplayer online role-playing game. Players create characters with both a race, like trolls or dwarves, and a class, like a warrior or a priest. Characters can also join guilds, which are teams of characters who play together and can communicate through guild chat rooms. During gameplay, characters can complete quests, combat opposing factions, and participate in raids. So, raids are large events where up to 40 different players all meet in a specific dungeon at a specific time to team up and defeat difficult bosses. These raids are quite difficult and require significant skill and strategy, and players often spend a lot of time discussing tactics and strategy together before and during the raids, which can often go on for about 8-9 to nine hours or even longer. After doing a little background research about the game, I was able to get in contact with the leader of Garrett's World of Warcraft guild. From there, I was able to contact seven different people who confirmed that Garrett's character, a night elf named Valoris Tremite, had been online during the entire raid. One player even sent me the game logs, which record that the raid began at 10.15pm and ended around 4.50am. Out of those seven players who responded, two of them were open to being interviewed further. Hey, this is Jessica O'Neill. Is this Grismith? Uh, yeah, that's me. Thanks again for talking to me. Sure, dude. What do you want to know? I know it was a long time ago, but do you happen to remember a raid you participated in back in February of last year? Something called the Battle of Dazar Alor. Hell yeah. How could I forget? It was, it was one of the longest raids I've seen since the Hellfire Citadel. Do you know a Valoris Tremite? He's a Night Elf Restoration Druid. Sure, I know him. Garrett, right? Yeah. Do you know each other well? Not really. We've been in the same guild for about three years. Was he playing the night of the raid? Valeris was there, yeah. And what do you remember about the raid? That night was our first try and it was a clusterfuck. But it's still one of my favorite raids in a long time. Mechanically one of the best so far. The ads were still a challenge, though. The Jaina fight was awesome. We wiped so many times, though. It was not an easy raid. I think we played for like seven hours. My girlfriend was pissed because we were supposed to go to her shitty nephew's birthday party the next day or some bullshit. Was Garrett playing the entire time during the raid? Well, Valera's Tremite was playing the whole time, yeah. Okay, so I notice you're distinguishing between him and his character. Is there a specific reason for that? Dude, Garrett's gonna kill me for saying this, but sometimes I think that Garrett might be botting. Botting? What's botting? Using a bot to control your character. Automating it. Usually they're just for farming, but there were a couple times I wondered. There's a few telltale signs, like 
they're getting stuck in a confined space or they can't run in a straight line. And were you noticing Garrett's character, Valoris, doing any of these things? Fuck. Dude, I mean, it was over a year ago. It's hard for me to remember exactly. I just remember being suspicious, you know? You know how you forget the details, but you remember being pissed? Why were you pissed about it? Only because he got us all wiped. Sorry, I don't know all the lingo. Can you explain what you mean by wiped? You know, killed. I remember it was during the second boss. He was this King Kong type of dude named Grong, and Garrett fucked up and got us all wiped. We were pissed, and we kept calling him Leroy Jenkins and shit. At first, I thought he stopped talking, because he was butthurt, and no. When you say talking, do you mean in a chat room, or...? Voice comms. You know, like a headset with a mic. Oh, okay. And Garrett stopped talking in the mic at one point. Yeah, after that second boss, maybe an hour and a half into the raid. Okay, but then he started talking again at the end? Yeah. He gave us a bit of a pep talk when morale was getting low and everyone wanted to quit. So we gave it another shot before we noped the fuck out and quit. Do you remember what time Garrett started talking again? I'd say an hour before we quit for the night. And when you... Oh, dude! Go ahead. Uh, uh, sorry, yeah. I just remembered some shit. I remember what he did that got us all wiped that made me think he was a bot. So, in a raid, there's like a series of bosses that get harder and harder. And in between the bosses, you walk around, farming, you know, battling some smaller bosses, pick up some loot. And generally, you don't want to wander too far because you'll pull too many mobs. Okay, you're losing me. So, everywhere you walk, you've got a gravitational pull of more monsters. Oh, okay, that makes sense. But sometimes the bots, since they have a hard time walking in a straight line, they glitch out and jump to the side that pulls in a fuckload of mobs. Okay, I think I'm understanding you now. So, Garrett's character glitched and jumped to the side and pulled in a bunch of new monsters and got everyone killed. Yeah, exactly. Okay, great, thank you. I just have one more question. If Garrett was using a bot, does that mean his character is always a bot? No, dude. You can turn it on and off. Ah, okay. Uh, yo, dude, uh, like, I gotta go. My girlfriend's up my asshole. I understand. Thank you so much for talking to me. No problem, dude. What do you want? After my conversation with Grismith, I decided to ask around and find some friends who were familiar with the game to confirm what Grismith said. I found that botting, or using a bot to control your character, was technically against World of Warcraft rules, but not really enforced. It was common enough that most players are aware of it being a problem, but still kind of looked down upon as a strategy. The quality of bots varied. Some were quite obvious, such as bots who played 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and moved in robotic and angular repetitive movements. But other bots were less obvious, especially ones that were custom programmed. I found out that since Garrett's character was a healer, he could have programmed it to follow around a tank, which are the characters who attack the bosses, and repeatedly heal the tank. However, without physically looking at Garrett's computer, it's impossible to know if he was using a bot that day. Garrett certainly had the programming skills necessary to make a bot. However, the time frame of the raid would make his opportunity to leave and kill Devon quite narrow. Garrett started his raid at 10.15 p.m. and Devon arrived home at 11.06. The last time Garrett was heard over the voice comms during the raid, which is the last time we can say for sure that Garrett was home playing the game himself, was an hour and a half into the raid, around 11.45. If Garrett did have a bot take over his character for him after 11.45, that means he would have to drive all the way up to Boiling Springs, kill Devon, 
get her body in his van and drive all the way back to Emmett before his voice is heard over the mic again around 3.50 a.m. That gives Garrett only a three hour and 55 minute window. The drive from Emmett to Boiling Springs takes one hour and 44 minutes without traffic. So a trip there and back in the middle of the night would take three hours and 28 minutes. That leaves 27 minutes. 27 minutes for Garrett to kill Devin and either dispose of her body or take it home with him in his van and leave it there. Another problem for another day. It was definitely a tight window, but ultimately it seemed possible. In order to explore this theory in greater depth, I had one of the players send me the logs, which according to the World of Warcraft website, detail every single event which took place during that period of time. For all players, including positional data, special event timestamps, buffs, debuffs, auras, cooldowns, ad spawns, player resource information, and more. Unfortunately, decoding this data was way over my head. So I sent it to a World of Warcraft expert I found online who generously offered to examine that data for evidence that Garrett could have been using a bot. I'll report back to you when I hear more information. In addition to validating Garrett's alibi from the video game, we also confirmed with Garrett's grandmother. Brett was able to interview her, and she confirmed that Garrett was home and did not leave the house the entire night of February 9th. However, Brett explained to us that this information must be taken with a grain of salt. When it comes to witness testimony, there's a concept called relational distance. In essence, the more interpersonal ties between a witness and a suspect, the more likely it is that the witness may lie or cover up the truth to protect that suspect. So in general, strangers are more inclined to tell the truth. So the fact that Garrett's only physical witness was his grandmother means that his alibi is pretty weak. Most law enforcement tend to focus more on the sheer number of witnesses, and again, that doesn't work out to Garrett's favor since his poor grandma was the only one who physically saw him at home. However, the fact that now seven different people have confirmed that Garrett was playing online video games that surely lends some validity to his alibi. If and only if we can confirm that it was indeed him playing the entire time without any robots. So you're saying Garrett's whole alibi hinges, basically, on proving that his character wasn't a bot. And, Brett, it, it's a bot. Right. Pretty much. Okay. So, what about Devin's modem, then? Is there any way we can analyze the traffic and see if video was being uploaded live online? Yes, I've, I've sent her modem off to the data forensics lab, and we will be able to tell if there was a sufficient amount of data being uploaded to prove that there was a live stream, in addition to the recording on the memory card, so we will hear back about that shortly. Awesome. All right. Thank you for that. No problem. I'll give you a call when I know more. Hey, Brett. Yeah? We're making progress. We sure are. That's it for this episode of Dead of the Night Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any information, you can leave us a voicemail at 208-398-3110. We appreciate any help that you can give us. This episode was produced by Gina Harris, Spencer Hudson, and Danielle Choda. Jessica O'Neill is our audio engineer, and I'm Kenneth Bailey. Asking once again, have you seen Devin Riesling?